Okay, if you'd like to open up your Bibles, please, to uh, Judges chapter 5. Sunday mornings when I'm teaching, we're going through the book of Judges. Last time uh, we went through chapter 4, which gives us the narrative about um, the fourth and the fifth judges, Deborah and Barak, and how in the north part of Israel, um, they rose up to meet the challenge of the invaders, the Canaanite invaders. They were the army of Jabin, led by Sisera, and God gave them tremendous victory. And uh, the victory ultimately came at the hands of Jael, a, uh, a Bedouin woman, a uh, Midianite, who hammered a peg into the temple of Sisera as he slept in her tent. So as we go to chapter five, what we are looking at here is the song of Deborah. So it's a retelling of the events, uh, but in song. And the chapter contains this victorious song, and it was sung by Deborah and Barak in triumph upon the defeat of Sisera and the army of Jabin. And if we just read verse one quickly, it says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying. And so we see that uh, it was composed as a response to the victory and a reminder of God's work in the life of Israel. And it was sung on that very day. Uh, but it was not just only sung on that day, but it would have been repeated among the Israelites, passed down from children to children, from generation to generation. Uh, much as it says in Psalm 145 verse 4, one generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. So every successive um, generation would have sung this song and it would have been an educational tool. By putting history to song, um, uh, the children of Israel would have had a, a helpful reminder there of what how God had moved in their history. And so it would have been sung among the families, the congregations and, and the uh, the children and uh, uh, would have helped uh, them to remember God's work in their life. Now, I was trying to think of other songs that have been written and recorded that uh, help us to remember historical events. And unfortunately, my uh, memory was a bit weak and I could only think of Rasputin by Boney M. Um, but even then, I think the historical accuracy of that song is in question. But I just want to bring a guest appearance to the talk this evening. Here's, uh, here's Anna. And you have learnt a historical song, haven't you? Can you tell me the name of all the presidents of America? In the song. In the song, yes. Okay. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison and Monroe, Adams, Jackson, Van Bowen, Harrison, Tyler, Potter, Polk and Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, Lincoln, Johnson, Johnson, Quanton, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, Cleveland, Mark and Lee, Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Joe Biden, and 46th President, it's for him we pray. Bravo. It just shows you the merits of putting history to song, how much you can actually learn. Because you know a song about the monarchs of England? And yeah. I think there are other songs that you're learning all about a history yeah, timeline as well. Timeline. It's called Timeline, yes. Timeline. What we'll do is I'm going to add you over. You can go downstairs and play. Thank you very much, sweetheart. And we'll go from 
the song of Anna back to the song of Deborah. And uh, yes, we've just been on holiday and uh, coming back from holiday, uh, we had to hit the M25 and M25, middle of Saturday afternoon, uh, you know you're going to hit traffic. There's going to be congestion. And uh, as, as we sat there on the motorway, uh, not moving very fast, I put on that song by Chris Rea, The Road to Hell. And if you know anything about that song, The Road to Hell is about the M25. Um, and The Road to Hell is actually two songs. It's got part one and it's got part two. And that's exactly the same with the Song of Deborah. It, you've got the Song of Deborah part one and the Song of Deborah part two. Part one is verses one to eleven and part two is verses twelve to thirty one. And the entire song is comprised of nine stanzas or verses. Johnny did tell me the difference between a stanza and a verse, and I've promptly forgotten that, so we'll have to ask him after the teaching this morning. But here in verse one, we're told that the singers of the song were Deborah and Barak, the son of Nabinoam. And so it was a duet as it was performed. However, it was Deborah who was the author. She was not only a judge and a prophetess, she was a poet as well. And so let's go to our first stanza, uh, which is verses two and three. When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hero kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. So this first stanza uh, focuses upon Israel, its leaders and people in verse 2, and then it focuses on the Gentiles in verse 3. And we know that Barak was initially, initially a little reluctant to lead, uh, not because of his lack of military prowess, but more because of a spiritual uncertainty. He asked Deborah to come with him to give him the spiritual uh, fortification he needed to be able to rouse the troops. But praise God, he answered the call to lead. And when leaders were willing to lead and the people were willing to follow, there was victory. And that was the reason they say there in verse two, bless the Lord. And it's clear God calls people to a position of leadership. It's not something attained through hard work, education and training. Three years seminary training does not make you a leader. Leadership in a church setting is a calling. And without the calling, it is wrong and foolhardy to take it on. But there is great shame when a leader is called but fails to rise to the challenge. Praise God this was not true of Barak. Now, every football fan I know can manage their football team better than the current manager, it would seem. And uh, every football fan can referee a football match better than the referee. And uh, I'm sure every work canteen up and down the country is full of people who can run the country better than Boris Johnson. But you actually put somebody in that role and it is a different kettle of fish altogether. Now, for me, I don't care who runs Chelsea Football Club, but I do care who runs the country. And God cared who led Israel. That's why he appointed Barak as leader and Deborah as judge. Now, leaders are nothing without followers. And not only did Deborah and Bar uh, Barak lead, but they had followers and they were willing. Uh, they willingly offered themselves. It says there when the people willingly offer themselves. Now, Israel didn't have a standing army like we have a standing army, 
Uh, and when a fighting force was required to combat an invading force, a call went out throughout the country and the average man was expected to be a fighter. They would set aside their cities and their farms, their tools and their plows, and they would pick up their swords and they would come to fight. And within the church, we are all expected to answer the call to arms as well. This can be a call to fast and pray over an issue, or this can be a call to unite on an evangelistic crusade. And the great shame on many Christians' part is not only a reluctance for leaders to lead in the word of God, but a resistance from the followers to followers to, to follow. We need leaders that lead in the church and we need followers who follow. Those who are willing to pick up the sword and carry out the work that God is calling us to do. Then in verse 3, it goes on to talking about Gentiles. Hear, O kings, give, O ear, O princes, I, even I, will sing to the Lord. Now, we know this is an address to the Gentile kings and princes because Israel did not have kings at this point in their history. Israel uh, were not only the recipients of God's law and God's, uh, and God's call upon them, they were to be God's witnesses to the Gentile world. And through the world, uh, through them, the world should know salvation. Over time, Israel failed to be an effective world evangelist, cultivating a separate natural uh, uh, national identity and culture, which made them insular instead of outward focused. Of course, this will change during the tribulation when Israel will form the largest missionary force the world has ever seen with 144,000. But Deborah calls the gentle nations to attention and she sings the praise of God for the victory he has wrought. This is a witness especially to those in the immediate vicinity of the greatness of God. It's a witness to all the surrounding nations that God has brought a victory. Now, Israel's army was a, a drafted army of farmers, but Jabin's army was a crack squad with, not, with 900 iron chariots. And the only way Israel could win is with the help of the Lord God of Israel. So this song would be both a reminder to Israel of God's greatness, but a warning of God's superiority to the Gentile world. So on to the second stanza, which is verses four and five, where we read, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. Now, Seir mentioned here is Mount Seir, and it this sees the Lord coming to join the battle and he's seen coming from Mount Seir and the earth trembles in his wake. The clouds issue forth rain at his command and the mountains yield gushing water at his direction. Now Mount Seir was in the territory of Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother, and their country was south of the Dead Sea. And when Israel travelled from Egypt to the Promised Land, they came from the direction of Edom and the Lord accompanied them, and the Lord fought for them. And when you move forward in the purposes and calling God places on your life, the Lord accompanies you. The Lord fights for you. Now the consequence of the Lord's presence caused a localised earthquake. The earth trembled, and there was a flash flood. And this caused the chariots of Caesarea to become bogged down in mud, and it made Caesarea's army easy pickings for Israel's soldiers. I think it's important to remind ourselves that the Canaanites worshipped Baal and Baal was the storm god, the god of the storm. But the Lord used Baal's strongest weapon 
against his people. And so this shows God's superiority over Baal. And then a second mountain, the uh, Mount Sinai is mentioned. And Mount Sinai marked the start of Israel's wanderings. Mount Seir marked the end of Israel's wanderings. But the Lord remained faithful to Israel throughout that journey. And I suggest that the message here is that Baal abandoned the Canaanites, but Jehovah will never abandon the Israelites. And likewise, the Lord will never abandon his faithful followers, his Christians. It says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're a child of God, the Lord is with you throughout. Okay, on to the third stanza, verses 6 to 8. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travellers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose, chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates, and not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So within this stanza, we see that the historical setting is given, the historical timing of the events being depicted in Deborah's song. It's in the days of Shamgar. Shamgar was the third judge. And it's in the days of Jael, which shows us that Shamgar and Jael were contemporaries. Jael was up the north, Shamgar down the south. Shamgar was a judge in the region of Judah against the Philistines, where while Jael was God's instrument in the north in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, where the Canaanites were. And Barak's insistence that Deborah would accompany him as he answered the call to fight resulted in Deborah speaking prophetically in Judges 4.9. She said, there will be no glory for you, Barak, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. And of course, we know that this woman is Jael, and both here and later, she receives glory in Deborah's song, as Deborah's prophecy foretold. Now, the song of Deborah elaborates on the condition of the country when this battle took place. First and foremost, we read, the highways were deserted and the travellers walked along by the byways. Now, this speaks of an absence of trade and security. The highways were the routes for the merchants. But the invaders either stopped merchants from moving freely from between cities and villages or, more likely, the invaders charged such an extortionate toll for travel that it became prohibitive. Either way, the effect is the same. Trade ceased, so food and supplies were in, in short supply and the people lived a degraded substandard of living. Anyone, uh, anyone who travelled without uh, who traveled they traveled without security uh, the highways were avoided for fear of being caught by the invaders and the byways were the haunts of robbers the second uh, condition we've spoken of here is is in the words village life ceased it ceased in israel and this really talks about an absence of leadership because that word village is from the root word for magistrate chieftain or leader and what is being suggested here is that the invaders oppression removed village chiefs and magistrates and so the invaders ruled the people and so the only justice people knew was the harsh cruelty of the Canaanite and Philistine invaders hence village life ceased however this oppression ended when Deborah arose 
And she didn't characterize herself as a prophetess or a judge, but she arose as a mother. And a mother, of course, is the source of life. And Israel were in a place of death until this mother, this source of life, arose. And then the real reason or cause for this condition that Israel were in was is cited. Israel chose new gods, it says there in verse 8. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. And so we see that as a result of choosing new gods, new gods the natural consequence was war in the gates. The God who brought deliverance and protection from Egypt was exchanged for the new gods of Canaan. And as Israel rejected the Lord God Almighty, so he removed his deliverance and protection. And Israel were unable to defend themselves because we see there not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They were completely without arms. Let's go on to the fourth stanza. That's 9 to 11, where it says, My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers, among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villages in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. This fourth stanza shows us that when Deborah arose, she became the rallying call for the armies of Israel. Uh, Judges 5.9 shows that this call was met with faith and a willing availability. It says there, um, who offered themselves willingly with the people. Both the rulers and the people of Israel offered themselves willingly. They, they came with an availability. And this is what God requires of us. When the word of God is spoken, when the spirit of God gives direction, it should be met with faith. And it should be met with an availability from his servants. You know, it's no good for God's spirit to direct Calvary Chapel Maystone in some work for the leaders to respond and everyone else resist. Or for everyone to recognise what God is saying, but then the leaders are deaf to the instruction. This will only result in frustration, division and defeat. We must all hear and we must all respond with faith and availability to God's call upon our lives as a church. And so the song now projects itself into the future and it imagines a time when the song will be sung later, when the glorious acts of deliverance by God will be recounted. It imagines people from all classes of life gathering together to sing this song. It talks about the rich, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges attire. And then it speaks about the poor and who walk along the road. They don't have donkeys, the poor, they have to walk. And it imagines a time when the sound of war is in the past Far from the noise of arches, it says, and when uh, a time when a place where there is a time and a place where there is no conflict among the watering places, it says. So it imagines itself this song being sung, this victory being recited at a time of peace in the future. And so that is part one of the song of Deborah. Now, as we go into verse 12 and onwards, this is the song of Deborah, part two. And we know it's the second part because it starts off. Um, awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away of son of Abinoam. So as the first, uh, as part one began with an introduction to Deborah and Barak, so part two 
begins with an introduction to Deborah and Barak again. There's that symmetry there. Deborah is said to awake and Barak is said to arise. So this is Deborah is, is a prophetic call and Barak is a military call. And uh, the, uh, the fifth stanza is verses 12 to 18. So let's just read that. Well, we've done verse 12. Let's carry on verse 13. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, there were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, rulers came down and from Zebulun and those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as Issachar so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command among the divisions of Reuben. There were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks of the divisions of Reuben, having great searchings of heart? Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by its inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardise their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. And what we have here is two groups, groups of people being cited in the song. Those who were faithful and responded to the call to arms and those who were unfaithful and refused to respond to the call. Now, the military force that answered the call to arms, it says here, then the survivors um, came down. Now, that's in verse 13. Now, that word survivors would be better translated remnant. Then the remnant came down, i.e. emphasising not all Israel answered the call. But the Lord came down with the remnant. He honoured the faithful remnant. He did not abandon the few. And the remnant is listed as being from the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, says here Machir, that's a reference to um, Manasseh, Zebulun and Issachar, and in verse 18, Naphtali. So there were six tribes that were comprised the remnant who were the faithful answering the call. And interestingly, Issachar is, is described here as Deborah's escort. They were, Issachar were the personal bodyguard for Deborah. And there will be times in our walk where God will call us to make a stand and we will find ourselves in the minority. We will be the remnant, not only in society, but also within Christian circles. But God will honour the faithful remnant. He will not abandon the few. He will be with them. But then from verses, second half of uh, verse 15 to 17, the abstainers are mentioned, those who did not answer the call. They are perhaps what they would call themselves conscientious abstainers. Um, I would be more inclined to call them the unfaithful cowards. But these are a picture of the lukewarm Christian. They are not fully invested in the things of God. They find it easy to excuse themselves from parts of Christian life that are too challenging or inconvenient for them. First is cited Reuben, where we are said, among the, the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. There were six tribes that were resolute in heart to fight. Reuben was also resolute in heart not to fight. Instead, he is seen sitting around the campfires of the sheepfold, playing music, indifferent or unhardened to the plight of their brethren. 
And this is a picture of those Christians who choose ease over the call to arms. When it comes between a choice, uh, comes to a choice between God and the football match or the soap opera or the social activity, it is God that is always dropped. Let us not be like Reuben. Let us not be those Christians who choose ease over service to God. In verse 17, we've got Gilead, uh, it mentions Gilead. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Now, beyond the Jordan is the east side, the Transjordan area. And there were three tribes that were there, Reuben, which we've already mentioned, and Gad and Manasseh. And it might be a reference here to Gad or Manasseh. Um, uh, it's difficult to be able to decipher that. But these are, those, these are a picture of those Christians who have defined their borders and don't cross them. We're here on the east. We're not going to come over. It's a picture of those Christians who serve God on their own terms. They commit to church on their terms. They don't let God direct or have the final say in their lives. They determine how, how deep their commitment to God will be. Let us not be like this Gilead group who uh, direct our own lives. Let us be those who are directed by God. Then we got mention of Dan. And why did Dan remain on ships? The question is asked. It seems Dan was too busy with its shipping industry to put the ships to one side and answer the call to take up arms. And of course, these are Christians who, a uh, picture of Christians who put work and business ahead of God. And it's understandable to be torn when there is a need to make money to live. But it's when there is a call from God and work and money comes first that there is an issue. Then uh, also in verse 17, we got mention of Asher. Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by its inlets, it said. Asher preferred the beaches and the harbours than the battlefields and the conflicts of war. In other words, they refused to move out of their comfort zone. And of course, this is a picture of Christians who don't grow in God. They are happy where they are. They don't move from their comfort zone. They don't put themselves in a position where they need to rely upon God and put their faith in God. They might be present in church, but they're not an asset to church because they're not growing in faith in their walk with God. Let us not be like Asher. Now, if anybody's doing a catalogue of all the 12 tribes, you're going to find that there are three tribes missing. That's Levi, Judah and Simeon. Now, Levi wouldn't have been called into warfare because they were the priests. They were there to serve the people, so they are justifiably excused. But the reason that Judah and Simeon are not mentioned is because they were in the south and they were being led by Shamgar in the conflict against the Philistines. But in, when we take the sum total of all these tribes, what this shows us is a growing divide within the tribes of Israel. Some were willing to fight, some were not willing to fight. Some were willing to join their brothers in the conflict, some were unwilling to join their brethren in the conflict. And so we see this disunity, a disunited nation. They entered and conquered the land, united, but now they're disunited. And it's a sign of the corruption and the degradation of the nation that this has occurred. Let's move on to the sixth stanza, verses 19 to 23, where we read, The kings came and fought, then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. 
They took no spoils of silver, they fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Caesarea. The torrent of Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. O oh, my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meroz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse his inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to help of the Lord, to help of the Lord against the mighty. So this stanza tells the, uh, retells the story of Israel's conflict with the Canaanite forces. And we're told of the army led by Caesarea, they took no spoils of silver. This means they weren't paid mercenaries, they were ethnic Canaanite troops. And we're also told the Canaanite army came and fought by the waters of Megiddo. The river Kishon uh, flows from the modern port of Haifa through the Jezreel Valley. And this is where the plain of Megiddo is. Megiddo is a large open plain. It's the perfect place for a battle. It would be a perfect place for Caesarea to run his um, uh, 900 iron chariots. And if anybody knows uh, their Bible, uh, this is not only a perfect place for battle for Caesarea, but when Jesus Christ returns to establish his messianic kingdom, the Antichrist will lead a military force against the true Christ in the plains of Megiddo. And it's from that word Megiddo that we get our word Armageddon. In the Bible, Armageddon is not the end of the world. It is, a it is first a place in Israel, and secondly, it's the name of a battle that precedes a thousand years of peaceful rule under Jesus Christ. And in this passage, it is the scene of an earlier battle that will be followed with 40 years of peace. In verse 20, there's the mention of stars. They fought from the heavens, the stars from their courses fought against Caesarea. Now, some take this to mean the weather was favourable to Israel in the conflict, and that is certainly true. But stars can also symbolically refer to the heavenly host of angels. Deborah could be saying the angels came and fought for us. And this would also be true because the battle wasn't only physical, it was also spiritual. God had called Israel to battle and God went ahead of Israel in the battle. And it's natural to assume that the angels accompanied him. In verse 21, um, it talks about the torrent of Kishon uh, sweeping them away. We know from Judges 5 verse 4 that a flash flood came and caused the riverbanks to burst. Here we see the river becoming an enemy to the Canaanite army. The flooded plain would have become muddy, rendering the chariots of Sarah neutralised and removing the Canaanite military advantage. The phrase, the galloping, galloping of his steeds, is a picture of the Canaanite army fleeing. And we know that the Israelite army pursued them. All the Canaanites fell by the sword. We're told in Judges 4.16, not a man was left. But in verse 23, we see a curse being cited. Curse Miroz, says the angel, curses inhabitants bitterly. Now, Miroz was an Israelite town in that region. And it's, this is its only mention in scripture. But this is a city that failed to do its duty. When the Canaanites fled, this city failed to block the path of their escape and they failed to put them to death. And for us, this is a warning. As a Christian, you might not be called to the front line, but when the battle comes to you, will you do your duty or will you be cursed like Miroz with dereliction of duty? When the battle comes to you, 
will you do your duty? Okay, on to the seventh stanza, verses 24 to 27. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water, she gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Caesarea, she pierced his head, she split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. And where he sank, there he fell, dead. Um, so the seventh stanza places Jael in direct contrast to Miros. Miros failed to do its duty, Jael is one who does her duty. Jael was a Midianite, a Gentile. Her husband Heber had sided with the enemy Jabin, yet when the opportunity came, Jael chose to side with Israel and with the God of Israel. And the application for us is simple. Regardless of your national heritage, regardless of your family ties, we are all individually accountable for choosing or rejecting Christ, for choosing or rejecting God. Jael chose God. Now, Deborah gives Jael an honour by saying, most blessed among women is Jael. And this is because Jael is the source of the salvation of Israel. But many years later, another woman, Elizabeth, confers the same honour on Mary, Jesus' mother, in Luke 1, verse 42, when she says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And this is because Mary is the source not only of the salvation of Israel, like Jael, but Mary is the source of the salvation of the whole world. And so we have a recounting of the uh, acts of Jael, um, her initial kindness towards Caesarea as he ran from the battle, of her deception and lulling him into a false sense of security, and finally of her killing of Caesarea. And, uh, you know, you kind of wonder what sort of tune this uh, jaunty theme went along to. You know, I don't imagine it was an Irish jig, uh, you don't get many merry songs of murder. In fact, you don't get many songs about murder at all, do you? I think the only song I could think of that uh, sings about murder is Delilah by Tom Jones. Um, At break of dawn, when that man ran away, J.L. was waiting. He crossed the street to her tent and she opened the door. He lay there sleeping. I felt the peg in my hand and he slept no more. My, 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 Cesara. Why, 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 Cesara? So before you come to JL's tent door, forgive me, Cesara, I just couldn't take any more. I don't know whether that's the tune they used, but it works for me, that's for sure. Okay, the eighth stanza, quickly, uh, verses 28 to 30. The mother of Caesarea looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answered her. Yes, she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil to every man a girl or two? For Caesarea, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments, embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. So the move from the seventh stanza to the eighth is also with a contrast, this time between two women, Jael in her tent 
and Cesera's mother in her house. Cesera's mother is anxious about the battle and the delay in her son returning, but her ladies-in-waiting speak to bring reassurance. He's taking his time because he's dividing the spoil, surely. He's taking his time because he's ravishing the women. And of course, this reflects the realities of war in that day. The victors would be involved in rape and pillage. And I've got to say, it's a dark, dark woman who takes comfort in a son who rapes women. But that's what's happening here. But of course, she will soon be disabused of this false comfort when news reaches her. And then there's so the ninth stanza is just verse 31, which says, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, and let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. And so the land had rest for 40 years. The final stanza harkens back to the Abrahamic covenant, where God promised Abraham and his descendants, Israel, I'll bless those who you bless, I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And Deborah assumes that those who fight against Israel are fighting against God and they will be cursed. They will, be, they will perish. But Deborah prays for those who love God. Those who fight for Israel will be blessed. They will be vindicated and victorious. They will rise like the sun, strong and glorious. And then the final line there, so the land had rest for 40 years. Well, the song of Deborah has lasted for generations. The peace uh, will only last for 40 years. And that peace lasts for the length of time that Israel remained in fellowship with God. And we may sing songs of God in church, but our peace with God only endures, endures while we are in fellowship with him. When we turn from God, his peace ceases to rest upon us. So let me close with the exhortation that Paul gives in Colossians 3 verse 15 where he says and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Take note of that peace that God puts in your heart and when that peace is no longer there know that something isn't right and you need to come to the Lord in confession and in prayer and in faith so that your fellowship with him can be restored. Amen. Well, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would put a song in our heart for the victories that you have wrought in our lives. Help us to be those faithful few that answer the call to arms, that do our duty. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be those that let your peace rule our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.